Welcome to this month's episode of Pull Up a Chair, an original podcast series produced by CFA Society Boston. I'm board chair Sarah Samuels, and I'm here today live from Wellington Management Company's Boston office with Ted Sides, who many of you may recognize from his number one ranked institutional investing podcast, Capital Allocators. Ted talks about his early days at the Yale Investment Office, his lessons learned about what makes a fulfilling career, and advice to all investment professionals in managing their careers so that maybe someday they can be a guest on Ted's show. Welcome to the podcast, Ted. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks for having me. Ted, you've got a fantastic career, most recently as the founder of Capital Allocators, which has millions of downloads. You have interviewed best-in-class investors. You have them tell their stories. You founded a hedge fund of fund called Protégé. You made a major bet with Warren Buffett. Lost a major bet with Warren Buffett, yeah. And you were trained under David Swenson. Not too many of us can compete with this amazing background. We can't wait to hear more about your story. You're usually behind the mic on the other side, and now you get to talk about yourself. Maybe if we could just go back to the early days, could you tell us a little bit about how you grew up and a foundational experience that formed who you are? Sure. My parents were not business people. My father was a doctor, actually a psychiatrist, which we can talk about at length. And my mother was a preschool teacher and administrator. So there was money management in the family. My mother's younger brother passed away a couple of years ago. This guy named Jim Rothenberg, who used to run Capital Group. So I knew about stocks, but we were East Coast family. He was West Coast. So I'd never really spent a lot of time understanding anything about it. But my father used to watch the predecessor to CNBC, which was CNN, FN, and there were just tickers. And he would take out the newspaper and follow these stocks. So I was interested in that, but I literally knew nothing about what it meant and took some economics classes in college. One of them was a 250-person seminar called Portfolio Theory, taught by this guy, David Swenson. And he mentioned that they hired one person a year, and that was my junior year. So my senior year, I applied, and it was Wall Street stuff. And it was I graduated in 1992, so you're coming out of the recession I had to say the Goldman Sachs Global Investment Banking Analyst class in 1992 was 18 people. So it wasn't easy to get those kind of jobs. In earnest, I didn't try that hard because all I ever heard about those jobs was how people worked all the time and were miserable. And then alongside it, there was this thing I had heard about and I interviewed, and that was the first job offer I had. I didn't really understand a whole lot about it, except I really liked the people I interviewed with. And that was the beginning of my career. Okay. So... You started your career at the Yale Investment Office. I did. That was my first job right out of college. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about what that was like. Oh, it was amazing. So I was there from 1992 to 1997. And the reason those years are relevant is David didn't write his seminal book until 2000. So he had joined in 1985. And after seven years, the portfolio really had taken shape in his image. And it was a new field. So there were probably half a dozen professional endowment foundation investment offices in the entire country. There were probably a dozen pools of capital like that in the world. I didn't know that at the time because I didn't know anything. So I just got to learn everything you could learn about investing from someone who was one of, if not the master in the business. Mm -hmm. And I also got to work with just an incredible group of people both personally and professionally. So it was almost like the best family office you could imagine. 
but you're just showing up and winning every day. And at that point in time, it was easy to see why you were winning because David had such a clear way of thinking and it made so much sense and yet nobody else was doing it. So year after year, you just could find you could win. And it was just a phenomenal place to be. What's an example of one of those easy wins or in hindsight, easy wins? Yeah. So back then, all the hedge funds that existed, Andy Golden, who later left and about to retire from Princeton, he managed what we call the absolute return portfolio. And all the hedge funds were on one sheet of paper and a little bit on the backside of the sheet. So the game about trying to earn, call it an equity-like expected return with less risk than the equity markets, was only understanding the game was being played. There was no capital introduction on Wall Street. You had to know that existed, and then you had to have the governance structure that allowed you to go and do something that was different from what other people were doing. One of the stories I like to tell about that was three or four years after I was there, David and Dean Takashi went to New York for a set of meetings, and they came back and they said, I can't believe this guy was managing a billion dollars and we would ne we'd never heard of him before. And his name was Lewis Bacon. He was running more capital. And that was what it was like. Another example of that was the venture capital world, which has really driven a lot of the high-end endowment returns for decades. Back then, you had plenty of time to figure out who the best venture capitalists were. Other people weren't looking. These managers weren't closed. And... Yale made a whole bunch of venture investments when David and Dean first got there because they thought it was a great area. Some of those were great. Some of them were terrible. But they figured they learned who the great people were. They asked them who the better ones were. And they probably had 10 years to build a venture portfolio before there were capacity considerations. So those were the types of things that just by being there earlier than everybody else, there was a material advantage in being able to build relationships with great managers. I'd love to come back to the Yale model a little later in our discussion and maybe continue along your journey. You talked a little bit when we were prepping about some early lessons that you learned, especially through your interview rounds at Goldman Sachs. <laughs> <laughs> so I mentioned that my, my uncle was maybe at that point in time was still running Capital Group. For whatever reason in my family, I grew up thinking I had to do everything by myself. And the idea of asking for help for anything was anathema to me. So I managed to go through Goldman Sachs into the final rounds of interviews, ended up not getting an offer, which is probably a driver of why I ended up at Yale. But I didn't think for a second to call my uncle and say, hey, do you happen to know anyone at Goldman Sachs? We didn't have the same last name. That might have helped, as it turned out, that Capital was one of their largest clients at the time. So there was a huge lesson in that that I really didn't internalize until probably 15 years ago of the importance of being willing to ask for help. You hear about it now in decision-making theory, which has really only taken off, and certainly since I started the podcast and really with Annie Duke's work, not behavioral economics, but what to do about it. And the idea of having diverse opinions in a room and the importance of that and getting to good decisions and then how you go about doing that just wasn't something that was like part of my understanding and mindset growing up. Okay, great. So we, we were also just chatting about the things that we wish our parents had taught us and maybe realizing that they don't have all the information. So any advice that you have for people to uh, expand their horizons and aperture yeah. and tribe? I'll tell that quick story because I think it's a fun one. A dear friend of mine, there's a psychologist in Pittsburgh, his name is Michael Mervosh, and I've been involved in an experience he created called the Hero's Journey Foundation. It's a phenomenal week-long uh, thing in West Virginia. And 
Michael once told me this story that said, think about you're with your father and you walk down a riverbank and you approach a bridge and you say to him, hey, dad, let's cross the bridge. And he turns back and he says, what's a bridge? And it was this eye-opening thing that there are so many little things in your life that you wish your parents had taught you. And at some point in time, you get to that and you realize they didn't teach you because no one taught them. And so we all have these gaps of knowledge and information. And that it comes back to this idea of being willing to ask for help, not feeling like you have to do everything on your own and the power of that. And it's still, by the way, it's still a struggle for me. I do it a lot more than I used to, but it, my instinct is to just go figure everything out on my own. Okay. So let's keep going with your career. What happened after Yale? So I came here and went to business school at Harvard. David was not happy with me about doing that. It was an interesting decision point because I loved what I did. I wasn't really aware of the broad, like academically and from an intellectual perspective, I understood a lot about investing, but there were no, it, there wasn't thought that was a career. Right? There, as I mentioned, there weren't any other opportunities. And David really liked keeping things quiet and insular. So you didn't build a network. And yet every money manager I met had gone to Harvard Business School, gone to Stanford Business School, whatever it was. And I had the opportunity to go to Harvard and I jumped at it. So I came up here, absolutely loved it, and then thought I wanted to pick stocks. So I took a summer job with one of Yale's managers. It was the summer of 98. They were value long and high flying bad businesses called dot-coms short. Amazon went from 40 to 260 the summer I worked for them and they were short. And so I, it was an interesting time. I then went back to school and thought I wanted to dive in and understand businesses better and worked for a little private equity firm that Yale had money with. Learned that sometimes what you on the outside, even if you're Yale, is very different from what you on the inside. Joined another firm that a friend of mine from business school had brought me to J.H. Whitney. And after a couple of years of feeling like I was not getting it, decided to go back to the manager side, manager selection. And that's when you founded Protege. Yeah. So... What happened around then was David had written his book, and I had this obscure background from my five years there through business school a couple of years later, and all of a sudden people started calling me, offering me jobs. And that was one of the signs I was like, yeah, maybe this is a better path for me. And among that, it was a lot of them were early fund to funds. And it was clear to me that people just wanted to monetize my resume. So I said, well, if I have an opportunity to do that for myself, I might as well try and had connected a guy named Dan Stern, who had run the Ziff family office and the Reservoir Capital, and he was trying to put together an asset management firm. He was also involved in seeding, which I thought I was really interested in because I love being closer to the managers. And for a bunch of reasons, didn't end up doing it with Dan, but he had introduced me to guy Jeff Tarrant, and Jeff and I partnered and created what became Protege Partners. Great. And from there... You had an opportunity to rethink what it is that you wanted to do, and fate stepped in and helped you find your way to capital allocators. Yeah, there's a lot of steps along the way. Yeah. Protege was a 14-year run. I would say that the insight of what do I want to do started around then. I missed an opportunity when I was in business school to take a class that would help you understand your career, because I assumed I was way above that. It's pretty stupid. But I had read the book, What Colors Your Parachute? And like my bubbles were statistics, sports, and people. And that was what led me to go back to picking managers because I was like, what better way can you put that together? When I left Protege, which was a combination like anything of internal reasons and external environment, I had no idea what I wanted to do. I thought I wanted to go back to multi-asset investing, probably in a nonprofit, though I still wanted to make a little bit of money. 
So I wasn't sure about that. But I found I was stuck between a CIO seat and a deputy CIO seat. So my friends, my peers were all CIOs. None of them would hire me as a deputy because they're like, you're at least as good as I am. And then everything had gone through recruiter. Dave Barrett, who's the lead recruiter for Endowments Foundations, is a good friend of mine. And Dave is like, yeah, you'll never get a job because your two hedge funds in 2016 was the beginning of scrutiny of has like, no, people want private equity, you're a hedge fund guy. I was like, okay. So I did a bunch of consulting and advisory gigs. I had written a book on startup hedge funds and I had appeared on a couple podcasts from that. And I woke up one day and thought, huh, like I'd love to go run around and talk to my old endowment friends. And that became the beginning of the podcast. And from there, you've interviewed hundreds of people, managers and allocators and others, similar to what you were doing in your seat evaluating hedge funds. So capital allocators, can you tell us a little bit about the components of this business that you've built? <laughs> so this is, I wish I could remember who said this to me because it was such a great line, but there's two types of entrepreneurs. They're the ones you think about who have an idea mm-hmm. and drive at it, right? They go get money from venture capitalists. They're going to change the world. And then there's the others where life just happens to them. Mm-hmm. I'm definitely in that latter camp. I used to describe what I was doing as the most reluctant entrepreneur in the world. I was looking for jobs. Tim, please, any PC needs someone like me. <laughs> but I started this thing on the side. And we've talked about this. I have an executive coach who happens to be my business school roommate. And a couple of years ago, he said, well, you're trying so hard to figure out what you want to do. Sometimes you just have to say, what's the world asking of you? And I just kept finding, I'd go talk to people about investing and doing all anyone wanted to talk to me about was the podcast. Now, the problem with the podcast as a business is it reminded me of the early days of the internet. And I would describe it as this. Here's the business, Sarah. You and I are going to have a conversation. We're going to share it for free, but we'll make it up in volume. The math of that doesn't make for a great business. So I never thought it could possibly be a business. And then after a couple of years, I had a bunch of other projects I was working on. And when the largest of those fell away, an advertiser called. It was Northern Trust. And they said, hey, do you take advertisers on your show? And I was like, yes, we do. (laughs) And so that became what looked like a stream of a business. And about three years ago, I leaned into that. Now, it's not a great business. It's certainly not an asset management business. And it took a couple of years to figure out what's really happening. Like, why are people engaging and what can you do around that? I've learned that when I chase money, I do a really bad job. There are people who are incredible at commercializing things, and that's just not me. So when I pursue my interests in investing intellectually, connecting people, like I describe myself now as a nonprofit investment banker, there's all kinds of people I love, and I just love doing it. And so then things come out of that. So as an example, money managers love coming on the show. And they reach out almost as much as if you were at an EPC with trillion dollars at your behest, because why do they want to come on the show? It's turned out that over the years, it's by far the largest audience of institutional investors. So there's no better place a money manager can come. And they come on and really great things happen for them almost universally. There's obviously some selection on my part that goes into that. So the question becomes, does the listener really care if there's economic value created if I take a small sliver of that? And so the answer turned out when you experimented was no. So a year ago, we started a sponsored insight series and the pitch became really easy, which is I source all the guests. You've reached out to me. So if you want to come on the show, you can sponsor a show. Mm -hmm. And that became 
a great monetization and use case for the podcast. So we did that for the first time in spades this year. We called it a sponsored insight series. We'll do 17 of them. And 15 are out. And all 15 have profusely thanked us for letting them come on the show, which my wife says to me, people are thanking you for paying you money, to, <laughs> which is pretty cool Like when you're in that situation. So that was one. The other thing that happens is lots of people assume that because I interview you and Tim, that I know exactly what NEPC is doing with all their money. Now, clearly I don't. But there are a lot of situations where because you have this network effect of people that are listening, I don't have to know if you can bring the right people together. So we started doing summits this year. There was always convening power around the podcast, but I hate conferences. Yesterday, I went to the Boston Investment Conference to benefit Boston Children's, and the content was as good, and Gene did an unbelievable job. The, the conference was as good as anything I could imagine, but I promise you twice, I did fall asleep listening. <laughs> I just think it's impossible to go and listen to other people talk for five or six hours. I didn't want to do that. I only wanted to do an event that I wanted to go to start from finish. To do that, it's got to be fully participatory. And the benefit of it is you're bringing the people together and they can find each other. And so that became a business, but it wasn't so much because, oh, I want to be in the events business. Like I want to be in the events profession. You think about the difference between the business of investing and the profession of investing. I want to have the best events. I don't care if it is maximizing the economics, but that's what's happened. And now there's an event business. There's the podcast, which is a business. I still advise a few managers every now and then. And it's the same kind of thing, just people that I think I can help strategically. And it's a lot of fun to do that. Mm -hmm. So for a person who had this belief that they could do it all on their own, you've really turned it around and are bringing people together all the time now. To be fair, the inflection point in capital allocators as a business started when I hired a few people. And then it accelerated when I started forming partnerships with some other organizations. I could, there's no way three of us, which is what it is, could do an event on our own. And so it shows, again, the power of not trying to do everything on your own. Yes. Okay. So tell us about Warren Buffett. How did you enter this bet with him? And what was at stake? So Warren's a gentleman in Omaha. <laughs> so in the summer of 2000, Warren always met with students and... He had said something a year or two before. It was the first time he was talking about fees in investment management. And he referred to the had rocks and the got rocks, meaning if the clients are the people who had the rocks and the money managers are the people who got the rocks and the, the rocks transferred over. And so he, he was on his pulpit talking about fees. And I had seen a transcript of him talking to a group of students who apparently he had said something about hedge funds could never beat the market. And a student asked him about that. And he said, no one took me up on it. I must have been right. And so meanwhile, you know, we had been doing very well in our fund. And I thought Warren, what he said was a little just too simple to be right. And so I sent him a one-page letter in the mail that was a little cheeky. I reprinted it in my first book to just show how you capture someone's attention. And then he responded. I had heard he was legendary in how he responded to things. So I was curious about that. But that was about it. We went back and forth and it turned into this bet, a nonprofit bet, where our side was effectively hedge funds against the market. So he picked the Vanguard S&P 500 index fund. We picked five fund of funds for 10 years for a million dollars for charity. The bet started in January 1 of 2008. Big part of the reason why I was comfortable making the bet was because the market was trading at historical high valuations. When that happens, you don't expect the next 10 years will be good. 
hedge funds do their own thing. You'd bet against anything but the S&P at that point in time, which that ended up being right, at least for a couple of years. And hedge funds were the thing I understood. So that was the bet. And after 14 months, so February of 2009, hedge funds are up by 50%. And the difference in those two return streams, if you look back over the past 10 or 15 years, was never more than 2 or 3% a year. And by all intents and purposes, the bet was over after 14 months. It turned out that wasn't the case. Fed came in, and I don't think the hedge funds had another like positive year since. <laughs> so Warren won the bet by a lot. And then he let everybody know. <laughs> That's really fun. Okay. Help us th- think through, we- we're coming back to the Yale model and your overall investment philosophy. Maybe help us understand and maybe debunk what the average market participant's understanding is of the Yale model versus what it was actually. Yeah. So David wrote his book to share a way of thinking about investing. All the people who worked for him always talked about first principles. Those first principles for a pool like Yale with very long duration assets, with very minimal spending needs, were to have an equity bias because those spending needs, while minimal on a year-to-year basis, are high. Needs to spend at roughly 5% real, and that's a very high hurdle over a long period of time. He believed in diversification as the ultimate free lunch. He believed in searching for inefficiencies where you can find them. And then he believed deeply in alignment of interest for the staff, for the people that you'd employ as money managers. That is the Yale model, as David described. Now, he then spent the rest of the book talking about how he applied that thinking to Yale. So most people then read the book and said, oh, this is how you invest. Most of which is right, because those two things are related, particularly for similar pools of capital. But there are a number of things that David said in the book that are completely misinterpreted by other people. And so just I for a decade, I'd wanted to reread the book, and I did it on vacation this summer. And then I wrote a little post called The Real Yale Model that talked about some of those things that I think people have misinterpreted about what David said. What's an example? The reason I wrote the post was the discussion of illiquidity. So most of what you hear about people's interpretations of the Yale model is that David loved illiquidity. Let me say this very clearly. Nobody loves illiquidity. Mm -hmm. So the problem with that as a prescription is that David started with the premise that you want diversification and equity orientation. Most of the pools of capital at that time were call it some type of 70-30 or 80-20 risk, stocks, bonds. Most of the stocks were U.S. Most of the bonds were U.S. for a U.S. pool of capital. If you want to diversify your equity exposure away from the U.S. equity market, by definition, everything else you do in the world is less liquid. You have to embrace some level of illiquidity in order to get the diversification. In the book, he described illiquidity as the unfortunate cousin of diversification. There's no choice. So the idea that David loved illiquidity is just flat out wrong. And so people then diving into illiquid assets because they think that's something David liked. Mm -hmm. The other thing is 25 years ago when he wrote the book or started writing the book, the other reason he liked looking at things that were less liquid is because other people didn't. Mm -hmm. And so there was more inefficiency and you could capture return. You could ask the question today, If you invest in a large-scale private equity firm who's buying businesses at multiples higher than a comparable in the public markets, is that a good thing? Mm -hmm. I think David would have said no. But that hasn't stopped people from embracing private equity in part because they think that's what David liked. 
So what portfolio would David build today? You'd have to ask him. Yeah. And unfortunately, we yeah. can't do that. I don't know the answer yeah. to that. Well, so let's rephrase. What, what about your views on private markets today and the value there? One of my favorite expressions about investing is the hard... If you think about your whole career, about what day was the hardest day to invest? People talk about financial crises, or maybe it's after the financial crisis, or was it like during COVID, or like the markets start ripping after COVID. All of that's wrong. The hardest day to invest is always today. Always. I look back and say, boy, there's been a bull market since I started in 1992. One of my first manager meetings was with Jeremy Grantham, and he was talking about how the bull market had ended in 1992. So it's never easy. I think that the private markets today are a great example of that. Let's take private debt. Fresh money opportunities in private debt are really interesting because rates have gone up and there's a dearth of capital, particularly in the middle market. The problem with that is that the economy can't sustain itself on loans at 15%. It just won't work. It works for now, but I don't know if it's a great opportunity for 10 years. I don't know what that means for a rollover in the economy. Private equity depends where you are. We've got this really interesting period of time where people talk about marks, but let's not worry about marks. Let's worry about activity. Private equity valuations have not fully reset. And the reason you know that is because all of a sudden you're starting to see articles about private equity firms not getting financing, not getting the financing they want. I've read another piece recently about NAV loans, which is this sort of the new thing trying to solve that problem that has its own host of potential issues. The reason the private equity firms can't get the financing is because they're still trying to buy deals at valuations that are too high relative to what lenders are willing to lend. If you look at the last 15 or 20 years in private equity, a deal 20 years ago that might have been a eight to 10 times multiple with six turns of debt now trades at 16 times with six turns of debt. So there aren't leveraged buyouts anymore. They're just buyouts. And you get to this point in time where a lot of the private equity firms don't want to keep putting the capital that they have and equitize this when the cost of debt is so much higher. So you're going to have some type of a shakeout. I don't know how that plays out. Is it a valuation compression? Is it the economy keeps roaring? It seems unlikely, but the economy keeps roaring and all these things grow into these valuations. But you're starting to see a slowdown in activity that's being driven by this uncertainty about valuations. And then you've seen more of that shake out on the venture side. But there are always pockets of opportunity and there's always inefficiencies. So they can be great places to play. It's just, you have to be more careful. You have to be with the right people. All right. That's, so that's a great view in, into your outlook for the markets and from a more top-down perspective. Tell us a little bit, you've talked in the past about how the thousands of managers you interviewed during your time as an investor and allocator, those interviews were very different than the interviews that you're doing today on your podcast. And tell us if there's anything you would have done differently, anything you've learned through your podcast interviews to help those out there who are interviewing managers and selecting managers. Yeah. No, that's a great question. It's very different. And I think that in all of my time interviewing managers, the output of those meetings was evaluative. It was, you're coming out of the meeting thinking, do I want to have another meeting with them? Do I want to invest with them? If I am invested with them, do I want to keep investing with them? There's always some next step that comes out of that meeting, which means you're constantly evaluating them. 
that brings on two challenges. In the meeting itself, it's really hard to listen to someone properly if you're evaluating them at the same time, if you're thinking about anything else at the same time. And so the podcast is a totally different thing. There's no evaluation. I'm, I'm on everyone's side, which is super fun for me. I like being on the team. And you're helping someone tell their story, but there's nothing else going on except for that conversation. And a couple of years into the podcast, I was for a long time on an investment committee, the foundation, the Wendergren Foundation in New York. And I went to meet with one of the managers that we had in the portfolio who I had known for 20 years. He was a hedge fund. And I had almost conditioned myself to interview in a slightly different way. Like it was a lot more personal because I just like that from someone's background and trying to figure out what makes them tick. And then you're going to talk about investing. And without even thinking about it, because I wasn't a professional investor anymore, I was just like saying, yeah, and I had the same conversation. I didn't think it was an interview. And there's a distinction between it. I just had the same conversation. And I learned more about the person, what was going on in their fund, all the strengths and weaknesses in that meeting than I had in 20 years of talking to them. And I went, wait, there's something to this. And so there is a process for how you think about listening and allowing that to happen and trying to set aside the valuation for another point in time that I think is very applicable. I recently released a podcast on capital allocators called The Art of Listening, where a friend of mine interviewed me about that. And I went into detail about what is that process? When somebody says, be a good listener, that's great. Very few people tell you, how do you do that? And I pieced a few things together over my life that create a framework for how do you listen? And when you hear that framework, you start to hear the same words people use over and over again in life. So it's become a super valuable tool both obviously for the podcast, but it's incredibly valuable in all aspects of investing because listening is so important to gather information. Probably on the home front as well in personal relationships. <laughs> my wife would say I'm very good at this, except for my conversations <laughs> with her, but I'm working on it. Excellent. All right. So you've interviewed at this point, thousands of people and they're all very successful. Are there any common traits that you have observed or pieces of advice that you would impart to our listeners who are the 6,000 CFA charter holders in the Boston area, as well as anyone else who chooses to download this? Yeah. So two different questions. On the first, are there any common traits? There are. All of these people are really smart, educated, motivated, driven, good-looking and on and super successful, right? One of the biggest challenges in money management is that people who have the characteristics that determine success, there are far more of them than end up being successful, which gets to the second point about any advice. Life, I have learned, is about setting expectations properly. And so a lot of what ends up happening that I see, I was talking to a couple of second year HBS students yesterday and they're asking me about, oh, what would you do if you were starting a money management career? And then the thing I said was, make sure you have your expectations calibrated appropriate. It's an incredible profession and field that can keep you intellectually engaged your whole career. I don't think the remuneration for that in the future will be anything like it has been over the last 20 years. And so people who are deeply passionate about what they're actually doing, not the outcome of that, will have fabulous careers doing this. And the expression, do what you love, which is confusing when you're young because you don't know what you love, or Andy Golden says, do what you like. I didn't even hear that until I went to business school. So growing up, I didn't even understand that was a thing. And I stumbled into that with the podcast. So I have loved being around investing. I always thought I wanted to be an investor. I don't miss it for a second. Mm -hmm. 
but figuring out what it is that's this combination of what do you really enjoy spending your time at that i work more hours now than i ever have before and i don't work at all i really don't feel like i, I work anymore so what do you really love and enjoy doing attached to ideally is there a trend behind that can benefit you and then who do you want to do it with is so important great all right we've covered a lot of ground i'd like to close with one question which is, can you tell us about a time in your life when you were brave and what impact did that have on your life? I can and I will, <laughs> but I'm going to preface it for restating why you might be asking that. Mm -hmm. So Sarah has written a wonderful children's book called Braving Your Savings. And I was flattered that she asked me to endorse it, which I was very happy to do. Anyone who's listening to this, mm -hmm. go get that book and send it to everyone you know. And you did ask me this. I told you it took me an entire week to come up with the answer I wanted to give. So I believe in raising kids that quality time is a myth and that quantity is really what matters because you can't manufacture quality time. And I got divorced eight years ago and got that idea of quantity time taken away from me. And in the years since, I think as any divorced and now happily remarried. God, I wish I met my wife the first time, but that's a separate issue. Father tends to do, you tend to be what's called the fun dad, right? I tr you try to manufacture that quality time and do everything you possibly can for your kids, sometimes at the expense of proper discipline and helping them understand that there are consequences for their actions because you live in this fear that they're not going to want to spend that time with you. And I did that for a number of years. And so the bravery that's come into my life and gets repeated weekly are those moments where I have to effectively tell my kids no for something, dealing with that fear that they will, certainly won't want to hear it. Their mother probably wouldn't say it, but I think it's the right thing for them. Thank you for sharing that. That's a really good one. Thank you so much, Ted. And thanks to everyone for listening to this episode of Pull Up a Chair. Join us each month as we continue our conversation with fascinating industry leaders. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. For more information on CFA Society Boston, visit us online at cfaboston.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>